Hello and welcome to this week's edition of Truth to Power with me, Justin Mogg, here on your community radio station. This is Forward Radio, WFMP LP Louisville, broadcasting out of the top of the Hayburn building here at 106.5 FM. And we live stream at forwardradio.org. And I am so glad to not be the only one on the line today. I've gathered a whole bunch of uh, Forward Radio friends here in the studio for a holiday week truth to power. We're just going to have a fun conversation about everything that's been on our minds these days uh, as we we enter uh, the period of the solstice and think about, uh, you know, the darkest days of our year and uh, welcoming in the brightness to come and the longer days to come. This is the week uh, to maybe reflect on this crazy year that's passed and and look forward to the year ahead. So uh, what a great time to talk with all my friends here. I'm really glad to have, of course, co-hosting again with me as usual, Hart Hagen from Let's Talk and the Climate Report. Welcome, Hart. Great to be here as always, Justin. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's good to have you. And I've also got in the studio some other programmers. Lonnie Griesbaum is back on the show, co-host of Backtracks. Welcome, Lonnie. Oh, welcome to you. Yeah, it's good to have you back on the line with us. Uh, We also have Ruth Newman, our program coordinator here at Ford Radio, joining us from her home in the virtual studio. Hey, Ruth, welcome. Hi, everyone. Glad you're here. We have uh, from Forward Radio's proud community partner, Sustainable Ag of Louisville, Stephen Bartlett is joining us back on the show again today. Welcome, Stephen. Thank you. Great to be back again. And also a newcomer, I think, to the show. I don't know if we've had you on before. Maybe way back in the early days of this program. Jeff Levy is here. Uh, He is onboarding with us. He's a potential new programmer working on a show called Outbreak, the Science Policy and Treatment of Coronavirus. Welcome, Jeff. Justin, thank you for having me. Yeah, it's good to have you all here. Um, So what do we want to start with today? I think, you know, in in reflecting on this crazy year, there's two big themes, obviously, the election and the pandemic. And uh, Ruth, why don't we start with the election? Uh, Because you you were doing this whole program for at Uh least a year called Election Connection, right? Mm -hmm. Where you you were interviewing not only candidates and talking about the candidates on the ballot, but this whole process of protecting our our vote and protecting democracy here in the U.S. Mm-hmm. And I think mm-hmm. I, I think a lot of us just breathed a huge sigh of relief uh, just mm-hmm. this past week when it, we hope it finally came to an end, right? And and the Electoral College finally certified the election for Joe Biden. Uh, but there, of course, were lots of other races. The, the, the fate of the Senate is still up in the air with runoff elections that are going to take place in the first week of January down in Georgia. But what are your thoughts on this election, Ruth? Uh, uh-huh. I, I know you especially want to talk about the mail-in voting part of it, but uh, mm. how are you feeling about it at this point? I'm feeling um, pretty good about it, although I might point out that although Biden won the popular vote by 7 million, he only came within 43,000 votes of losing the election (laughs) because of the Electoral College votes. Which is is only slightly more than Trump managed to squeak by uh, because (laughs) of the Electoral College four years ago, right? Yeah, so that brings up the issue of why why do we still have an electoral college and um i i'm clueless (laughs) (laughs) well isn't it slavery isn't slavery the reason we have the electoral college right i think so i think you're right a a friend of mine or acquaintance i should say of mine who 
uh, voted for Mr. Trump uh, told me that the reason we have the Electoral College is because it's in the Constitution and we have to have an Electoral College. Constitution by design is very hard to amend. Right. But Jeff, is that wrong? I mean, it is in the Constitution, right? I don't think so. No, it's, it actually came after the Civil War. Yes, that's yeah. that's why I was, I was kind of bringing in the misinformation yes. angle, and I, I don't want to divert the conversation, but that's the kind of thinking I think that we're going to be up against. Some of the you know, erroneous thinking that we're going to be up against if we want to uh, get rid of the Electoral College. And any thought, thoughts on what, what's happening with that, Ruth? Have you had a chance to get involved with that or educate us a little bit on how we can you know, make it more democratic and maybe get rid of the Electoral College? Well, I will defer to Lonnie. Well, I just had uh, one comment on that. Short of being able to do away with the elect Electoral College altogether, one of the things that I've heard proposed is that states band together and say, look, we're going to go to a proportional allocation of the votes. In other words, based on your population, I think that would go a long way. We could probably get that accomplished easier than we could actually get the Electoral College done away with altogether, which would be the, the best way would just be to go with the popular vote. But the smaller states are never going to agree to that. They just aren't. So if the proportional vote like California has and several other states already have, pretty much if you go back to the elections that we've had in the past, I don't know how many cycles where we've had this problem, the proper person probably would have been elected even in the Electoral College. So. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, if I feel like if we if we get rid of the Electoral College, we should also get rid of the Senate and move to a unicameral legislature like Nebraska has, where you, you don't have to deal with this insanity of trying to balance uh, the will of the people versus uh, the will of uh, the states, you know, this whole states rights thing. Uh, it, it, it seems like they both need to go, right, Lonnie? Well, the whole reason for the Senate in the first place was to make sure that the regular people weren't able to band together and, and <laughs> god forbid run the government right, right. the senate initially the senate was an appointed position so that's uh, right you know it was it was meant to be appointees who were wealthy who had experience running businesses respected members educated members of the community because they were fearful of a, of a government that was run by the masses. Yeah. Hart, you wanted to jump in? Uh, James Madison was like the chief architect of the Constitution. Yeah. Uh, he, he, he was not a bad person, but he really believed that the people who owned property were the responsible people and that the, you, know, sh you should not have a government that easily allows the unproperty to change the government and do things like land reform, etc. You know, he, he set it up that way. And, you know, so you, instead of a unicameral legislature, like Ben Franklin was for a unicameral legislature, uh, like, like Pennsylvania had at the time. Oh, did they? Which, which was one, you know, one house. Like if we had only the House of Representatives, but the, the one that ultimately passed was the one that included the Senate. And so it results in an unwieldy government where it, there's a lot of insulation between the popular will and the public policy. 
Yeah. And, and it was set up something like the House of Lords mm -hmm. in England. So what's that tell you? Yeah. And, you know, the Electoral College only comes into play for the presidential election. And I think I think we put a little too much focus on the presidential election. Of course, it matters who's who's president. We've seen how destructive one man can be with the Trump administration. But Mitch McConnell is the real problem here. <laughs> and he's going to continue to be a real problem. The only reason Mitch McConnell is a problem is because of slavery. Right. Because we set up a Senate that was there to defend the slave states. And if we got rid of that, then we wouldn't have to worry about people like Mitch McConnell uh, get gumming the works and preventing any progress and making it his only job to, well, when Obama came into office, it was to, you know, keep Obama to a one term <laughs> and then defeat everything Obama tried to do. Right. So he's going to continue doing that uh, if if uh, those one of those Georgia seats doesn't go to Democrats, right? Lonnie, what do yeah. you want to say? Well, you could get rid of the Senate, and, and, and as a part of the compromise, you could make the House of Representative terms four years. Ooh. Instead of having them have to constantly, constantly run, be yeah. co campaigning, you know, that's ridiculous in itself. Yeah. I mean, I'm for term limits, but come on. I mean, <laughs> you elect somebody, and then within three months, you're already fundraising. Mm -hmm. Yeah. For your next election. So you're beholden to what you're afraid is going to happen yeah. in the next election. Yeah. So that, yeah. that, that's a possibility. Well, was anybody else surprised that the election went as smoothly as it did? <laughs> I certainly thought for sure it was going to be there, that there were going to be some actual lawsuits that actually went somewhere instead of Trump's uh, kind of game show. Right. So the mail in voting seemed to go well. Right, Ruth? Yeah, and I was very excited about that because look at all the extra, all the new people that voted right. who don't have a chance to vote when it's on one day, has to be a specific location, and it can only be between the hours as for Kentucky, for six example, six, yeah. 6 a.m. to 6 p.m., which is just so hard on yeah. so many people, especially if they don't work anywhere close to where they live. Mm -hmm. You know, so the mail-in was just a godsend. It and also helped with all those voter ID issues, too, right? You have to show up at the poll in a lot of states with the this exact kind of ID because of all these ridiculous voter suppression laws, right? Right, right. And they they come in they've run into so many obstacles with that voter ID. Like in some states they don't accept college IDs right, right. as Wisconsin. voter IDs. And mm -hmm. so a lot of students were barred from voting. Mm -hmm. Um it just uh it's amazing to me. And half after having interviewed um Kim Wyman, who is Secretary of State for the state of Washington, and they've had mail-in voting since 2011. I was so impressed with how secure that the Washington state elections are and how well um, uh, they, they all participate in that election. Well, you don't, all, you don't have to request a ballot in Washington, right? You just get right. automatically sent you one. You get one Imagine automatically. That. <laughs> that, yeah, ballot comes to your door. Go ahead, Hart. If we only had elections that are as good as Venezuela. <laughs> Tell us about that, yeah. They, oh their elections are so much better than ours. Uh, Jimmy Carter, who has done election uh, you know, monitoring since he left the presidency, 
uh, said, you know, it has very strong things to say about how good their uh, elections are. And, uh, and I've seen videos and I've, uh, and it's like, but all you hear is, oh, Nicolas Maduro is a dictator. Hugo Chavez is a dictator. And uh, they, they predicted <laughs> the, like the, uh, somebody like in the media or like the State Department predicted that Venezuela's elections were going to be rigged. You know, before the elections happened, they knew in advance <laughs> these elections were going to be rigged. So well, just anyway, like Trump knew ours was going to be rigged, right? <laughs> you know, so, but, but when I found out that Venezuela had all that oil, I knew we needed to bring them democracy. <laughs> I want to bring Stephen into the conversation because you've actually been to Venezuela, right, Stephen? Well, yes. Um, and you might, you might not have seen that Venezuela just completed their election for the National Assembly. Yeah, this yeah. Is a, this is a very significant election because um, the National Assembly had been banned from its functioning because of um, corruption um, starting a couple years ago when opposition candidates uh, seated themselves even though they were fraudulently elected. And then they proceeded to pass laws that were all unconstitutional, trying to overturn the administration of uh, Nicolas Maduro. Anyway, but they've just had National Assembly elections and uh, the party that represents the, the uh, Maduro and his, gov his governmental party, well, the party of his party, have won about 67% of the vote in this last election. And, um, but some of the opposition foolishly boycotted that election again because they think that the United States is going to invade and overturn the government there. Huh. Yeah. Welcome to America, where we don't believe in climate change, but we do believe in regime change. <laughs> and that's a good know, one. It, Art. One of the most telling things, one of the most iconic moments in my mind, and I'm I'm sure I'm one of the few who noticed this, maybe. But when Trump gave his last State of the Union address, Juan Guaido was there. Juan Guaido was the as the person who is supposedly the president of Venezuela, except that it, there was nothing constitutional about him being president of Venezuela. He swore himself in one day. And uh, both houses, both, I mean, both parties, it's in a state, Juan Guaido was there, and both, uh, both parties stood in a standing ovation for Juan Guaido, yeah. which shows the, the bipartisan commitment yep. to regime change. Yep. Yep. Jeff, you wanted to jump in. Uh, what Hart's uh, speaking about, uh, Mr. Guaido, reminded me that a few years ago, I, I happened to be in New York right after Donald Trump had been elected. And for all kinds of crazy reasons, as a high school student, I had kind of learned French and that continued in college. So what's the connection? I was at a, ho I was at a hotel and I was not thinking about politics, though I usually am. And I was just waiting for my ride. And I looked over and I saw a familiar face. I was trying to think, who is this? And I read, oh, this is Marine Le Pen, huh. who I've only seen on t TV. Uh, who's Marine Le Pen? She's the, as, as we all know here, she's the leader of the rebranded Nazi party of, of France. Of course, it's no longer called the Nazi party, um, the National Front. And I just thought to myself, uh, I kind of was switching gears and I was thinking, Oh, you know, uh, what would Marine Le Pen do, be doing at my hotel? Oh, she's not here at my hotel. Oh, she's in New York. What's happening? Oh, well, it turns out she had been invited by Donald Trump to 
Wow. As I read a few wow. weeks later, uh, to join him as one of her one of his friends mm. at the elect uh, for the election. So that's not that's not bipartisan, as, as Hart had pointed out with Mr. Guido. Uh, I think it's an indicator kind of pointing in the same direction. Good point. So, Lonnie, what do you want to add? Well, I don't think anyone that reads any honest history about South America uh, can come away with any other view other than the United States has always had a policy of regime change below, you know, below the border. If it doesn't, if it didn't agree with American interests, regime, regime change was the name of the game. <clears throat> you know, we supported a coup. Henry Kissinger supported a coup to assassinate a, a G General Schneider in Chile because he would not participate in a in a coup to overthrow Allende. Mm -hmm. And it, and the the documents are all declassified now. Anybody with half a brain can read that and see. <laughs> That he, that General Schneider was murdered with guns supplied by the CIA. So nobody should be surprised about anything that we're doing in Venezuela or any kind of the propaganda that's being spewed out about Venezuela and about Maduro or about Shah or literally about any other leader in South America. Yeah, and I mean, it goes all the way back to Eisenhower probably even before that, you know, in Guatemala, you know, we sent 5,000 Marines into Guatemala to force them to be able to build a railroad to get bananas out huh. for the national fruit company. Banana That's just the truth. It's not, it's not an opinion. It's the fact. Yeah. Part. So, so yeah, we could talk about Guatemala. We could talk about El Salvador, Venezuela, Cuba, Brazil, Bolivia, but why is this not common knowledge? Most mm. people here are aware, everybody here is aware of all of this. Why did we not get this in school? I want to know why did we not get this in school? What are the dynamics? You would think if they're teaching us history in school that we would get this history. They just forgot, huh? Right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know what they say uh, is that the U.S., we learn geography, uh, that is, those of us who do learn any geography, after we invade a country, then we find it on the map. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe I just was uh, missed school that day. Thought <laughs> about. Uh, we're having a freewheeling conversation here on Truth to Power here on your community radio station. We're Grassroots Community Radio, and we open up the mic for a community roundtable. Uh, we record here after work on Friday. It's our happy hour here on Truth to Power. With I'm Justin Mogg, host of Sustainability Now, Hart Hagen from The Climate Report, and Let's Talk, which you can hear every day on this station at 7 p.m., is also on the line. We've got Ruth Newman, our program coordinator here at Forward Radio, Lonnie Griesbaum from Backtracks, Stephen Bartlett from our community partner, Sal, and Jeff Levy, who's working on a new show for us on Outbreak, the Science, Policy, and Treatment of Coronavirus, which I think... I think if we could turn to now for the for this part of the show, talk about the other big theme of the year, obviously, 
Uh, man, I'm still thinking back about those early days of uh, March and the very end of February and how different my life was. I remember going to my last uh, big public gathering, the Organic Association of Kentucky Conference, and just thinking about how wonderful it was to just be in a room with the hundreds of other people listening to the speaker. <laughs> um, what, a, what a year it's been. Uh, but uh, th- this year, this whole pandemic has also spawned a bunch of conspiracy theories, too. And now now we finally have a solution in front of us uh, with with vaccines. And yet there are conspiracy theories about those. Right, Jeff? Well, that's what uh, that's what your favorite magazine, the uh, Harvard Misinformation Review, is telling us. (laughs) (laughs) And um, that's and I just learned that um, one of our wonderful University of Louisville professors uh, Dr. Enders is uh, is one of the contributors to that particular uh, magazine, so he's going to be uh, joining us. I hope soon for a conversation on cool. on conspiracy theories and and what I think is really interesting about his work is it's not kind of just the the theory in general. In other words, how do these things get passed around on Facebook and reinforced in that in that echo chamber? But also, what are the, everything from the individual you know cognition and our tendency for all of us to make mistakes our kind of implicit biases how, how does you know kind of the personal connect to the political how does imp- and uh, that sort of thing so uh, and one of the things i'll just throw out there that i find really the most fascinating about all the conspiracy kind of stuff is that it it, it appears that uh, multiple researchers have found that people who believe that um, you know hydroxychloroquine will work that um, that the World Health Organization or, or Bill Gates in particular wants to inoculate us so that we have chips in our in our body, <laughs> um, which would be an unbelievable nanotechnological you know um, feat if it were done. Um, this, those same people tend to be statistically, you know, not every person, but tend to be um, uh, adverse to. Uh, they they tend to be. Uh, rigid in their thinking. So in other words, even when they're shown on standardized kinds of tests, hey, you got this wrong, they're, they tend to uh, not be willing or able, at least uh, in the moment, to to change their views. So I think that's a fascinating and horrendous and fascinating question for, for democracy. How do you work with people? We're all fallible. How do we all work together to you know, uh, maintain and create more democracy when all of us are susceptible to some extent to to misinformation, disinformation. Yeah, Lonnie, you wanted to jump in, and I know you you yeah, tried to quick. you tried to do a virus free shopping experience recently, right? I did. <laughs> I did, and I was real pleased today. I, I'm trying to achieve some semblance of Christmas while keeping myself and others <laughs> safe from COVID. Yeah, and uh, I did two curbside pickups. Okay. Some, stores and there was one store i had to go inside and when i did i was pleasantly surprised i guess i don't know if i should say the name of the store or not but i was pleasantly surprised that uh everybody had masks on everybody was distancing everybody i mean it just seemed like a whole different attitude which really pleased me i was i was really uh feeling good about that but what i wanted to comment on was about the the chips and the uh, virus in the vaccine. <laughs> My 15-year-old daughter, a couple weeks ago, said she wasn't going to take it because they were putting uh, microchips in the oh, vaccine no. to, to monitor people. 
And I picked this up and I said, well, what's this? You're walking around with one of these every day that has way more information in it than they could ever get out of a microchip. Why would they bother to do that? And then after the, this big hack yesterday of the federal systems, computer systems, why would the government, how would the government be even capable of doing this microchip thing when they can't even keep their own computer server <laughs> safe? I mean, the whole thing is just ridiculous. Lonnie was holding up a, a, his smartphone for our listeners who can't see that. <laughs> yeah, your oh, point. I, I forget we're on the radio. <laughs> your point is well taken. <laughs> yeah, we are okay, getting I tracked for sure. Just for integrity, I want to put this will be real quick since we're talking about disinformation. The the uh, earlier we were talking about the um, electoral college, and uh, it is in the Constitution in the sense that it's the Twelfth Amendment. So uh, I don't want to just uh, tell, talk about other people having the in integrity and fighting against disinformation, and then come on the show. And Thank be you, a, a disinformation spreader. Thank you. Okay. Yes. Disinformation is what we do here, and we're proud of our. Of our <laughs> <laughs> there are some horrible amendments to the constitution there's some good ones too uh but yeah just because except, it's in the constitution doesn't mean we need to keep it except mm -hmm. on our backtracks music show from time to time you're liable to hear some misinformation but we don't <laughs> claim any responsibility at all for anything <laughs> Well, what other uh, things have been on our minds about the coronavirus and the pandemic? Are y'all feeling as, as hopeful as I am uh, that 2021 is going to really kick 2020's butt? <laughs> <laughs> well, one thing that, you know, has occurred to me is every time now, every time I look at a movie on TV. Oh, yeah. If they are not wearing masks. <laughs> oh, yeah. My, Same thing. <laughs> My hackles go up. Right. Yeah, you know. Isn't that funny? Yeah. <laughs> They're kissing. Like, oh my god. <laughs> I know. Are they in a pod? <laughs> They're dancing together. They're having a meeting. Like a the nerve of them. Meeting. The nerve of them. The nerve of them to be on a movie and not have masks. Yeah. On, you know. Lonnie. By the way, I'd I'd like to give a real big shout out to some people that are dear to me because I know so many of them. And that's musicians and other performing artists. Yeah. They're really having a tough time. Yeah. Because they work in a gig economy. They're not uh, eligible for uh, unemployment insurance right, and right. a lot of things like that. And uh, they're just really having a tough time. And even after the pandemic passes, the landscape's totally changed now. It's going to be a long time before that becomes, you know anything close to what they used to have which wasn't much in the to begin with do you know lonnie have any local venues announced that they're not going to reopen yeah i couldn't name them okay right now but there's been quite a few uh, and it's questionable a lot of them the ones that do music only like uh like uh, headliners and and uh, the palace you really won't know until it's time for them to reopen I mean, it might be that they try to reopen and then they just can't make it. And so uh, I know the Louisville Orchestra is having a tough time. Yep. You know, um, so really my heart goes out to those folks. And, and believe me, when this thing's all over, we do need to support local artists and musicians. And 
And are there ways to support them now, even now? Are people doing benefit shows and things like that? Well, you know, and there's been some efforts in that regard. I don't know how successful they've been. Uh, Some of the streaming events that fans are doing, live streaming. uh, I don't know how much money they're actually getting off that. I doubt if it's really a whole lot, but anyway, there's something happening anyway. And it didn't um, Mitch McConnell's wife's business receive about 300, I saw receive $350,000 in loans. Wow. Oh, yeah. uh, but musicians here are, you're describing, uh, Lonnie, the situation for, for mu- musicians just, just in contrast. And it's not just the musicians. It's, it's, it's the supporting staff, booking agents, uh, um, people that sell equipment to musicians. Uh, I mean, you name it, uh, stage hands, uh, yeah. the whole, the whole gamut. I mean, it, it's a lot bigger part of the economy than people really realize. Did you see where Neil Young sent a cease and desist to the Trump campaign to stop playing his songs? <laughs> yes, he did. And, and he so did, yeah. He made all of his, uh, music free to stream I, I forget i guess from from now for the next few months so he he's doing what he can i mean i think he's a good guy i mean you, there are a lot of people complain about old neil <laughs> he is an eccentric for sure but uh oh, i I'm think gonna he's be, a really good fellow i'm gonna be neil young when i grow up hopefully <laughs> <laughs> that's a good goal <laughs> yeah i you know what what i wonder and this is not a good segue at all it's okay is <laughs> we're popcorning you know we've got people that are unemployed now that are in the service industry and in you know in the arts and then we've got empty shelves we've got so many horrific needs um you know i just keep wondering if this isn't a, a very liquid time of of uh, the era that we're living in right now that needs a t- total reconfiguration, maybe even with our artists. You know, this whole relationship between the audience and the performer, mm. maybe there has to be a different configuration where the performer and 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 the recipient. I, I just my I remember, Back in the when I lived in Madison, Wisconsin, yeah. <laughs> I went to UW just like you, Justin, uh-huh. and uh, I saw a film that really impressed me. It was uh, I think it was Nigerian. It was these Nigerian musicians, and um, they were drumming, and there was uh, some women dancers, and they were dancing, and it was absolute incredible communication, and it was all you know just being ad-libbed on Mm. the spot improvisation Mm. but it was just so inspiring and i thought why can't we have something like that here where there's a back and forth there's some kind of back and forth and not just this rigid you know audience and performer division and i think the same thing with uh, the 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 stuff we produce mm-hmm. you know there's so many things we don't need and then there are other things that we desperately need <laughs> you know and it just seems to me that this would be a perfect time to be reconfiguring 
you know, how people employ themselves. Yeah, Lonnie? Well, when it comes to music, and we could do a whole show on this. Let's do. (laughs) When it comes to music, uh, the big question is, how do you compensate musicians? Right. That was hard before the pandemic. And it was always, and it was always hard. It's been hard since the 1920s. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The thing is, right now, the music business is controlled by just a handful of companies. They are the gatekeepers. They own most of the rights. People don't realize that, you know. These musicians that have million-seller uh, songs or billions of streams, they're not getting most of that money. They're getting about 18% of it. Wow, is that Label, it? The labels 18. are getting everything else. Wow. The labels control the business. And so, and they could care less about the average musician. They care about some of the big acts, you know, the huge acts. They right. care about them. They could care less about some band here in Louisville, Kentucky that does benefits half the year for charitable organizations. And so trying to figure out the proper way to compensate musicians and other artists and performers is a big thing that has to be done. And I don't know that I see that happening. What I'm in favor of are cooperatives. Yeah cooperatives that are owned by musicians there you go venues that are cooperatives that are at least partially owned by musicians to where you could try to make sure that the money that is earned goes to the people that actually make the music or put on the performance or the dancers or the Mm -hmm. whatever because without that this is what you get you get this homogenized music scene that's that's pretty much dictated by just a few people Stephen, yeah. go ahead. I think you want to jump in. Well, I love this. I think it's a good segue, Ruth, um, in that I think the pandemic and our situation is raising new questions about the whole structure of our economy, hmm. not only for musicians, but I think the musician is a good metaphor for the, let's say, food production, right? Um, who are the people now producing food? A lot of them are farm workers who are who are you know um, brought in on special visas from Mexico and Central America to work in the fields? We have underpaid apprentices who are well to, from well-to-do families who are trying to get into agriculture, and they're paid maybe three hundred dollars a month as apprentices. Right? The whole business model is is really skewed toward exploitation of workers. Um, exactly. And and then those of us who want to produce food locally here in the city of Louisville, doing urban agriculture have the issue of how to get access to land, you know? And we have an example right now of a group of 100 um, families who are from um, originally refugee families from Africa and Asia, from Burma, Nepal, from Congo, from Burundi, um, who are working land um, on the south side of Louisville. And we, I'm part of an organization that helped help them get access to that land um, in 2017. But because it's considered private property, now the landowner is saying that they want to put a parking lot there for another purpose uh, after, after the original five-year uh, allowance that they said you could have the garden here for five years, but now we want to build a parking lot. So these 100 families, it's, the garden is called Peaceful Eden, 
and they they are producing on plots about 140 plots. There's about 100 families. They are producing an enormous amount of food every year on that land that they feed their families with, and that they also uh, feed their neighbors and their extended families and their communities with this food. So um, yeah, I'll just throw it out there. You're going to be seeing it's an issue where we're going to try to raise uh, public awareness of that garden and try to persuade the landowner, um, which is the St. John Vianney Catholic Church there on Southside Drive, right next to the Americana Community Center, to uh, reconsider their their plans to, to put a parking lot on this land. Yes. That's just one example. We really have to think about what's really important in life now. And, what, you know, does private property uh, supersede the needs of so many people? You know? And does Louisville need another parking lot for crying out loud? <laughs> Lonnie, go ahead. <laughs> land, land trusts. Yeah. Yeah. You know, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with Gars Alperovitz from the yeah. University of Maryland. I really follow that guy. He He's sharp. And he talks about that all the time. We need public land. We need land that's bought and put into a land trust, specifically for things like our uh, agriculture yeah, and that sort of thing. And for just if anything else, commons, the commons, where you, you, you've got places where people can gather like they did in Athens. Mm. <laughs> You know, and, and they can just talk to each other and exchange ideas. And, and and that's all gone. You can't hardly go anywhere in Louisville now except for maybe a public park and find any space at all to have a, a just a people to get together and talk about right, things. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, uh, parks, there's regulations. They've made it to where the only people with any, the only thing with any rights in the park are the tulips. I mean, everything, I mean, there's nothing wrong with tulips, but you know, you got to be out of there by eight o'clock and you can't do this and you can't do that. And you can't, you know, and it's like, you can't have an assembly without a permit. You mm -hmm. can't sit and, and, you know, it's just, it's gotten ridiculous. I mean, we need spaces for people where they can go and just be together. Yeah, and that's one instead of isolated like we are right now behind a, a, a screen. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's one reason I'm particularly excited about the Louisville Community Grocery Project because uh, it's not just thought of as a grocery store, but a place of that will have a commons, right? That will have a community space where nonprofits, you know, that don't have money to rent a facility for their meetings can <laughs> can actually, you know, reserve the space and have a meeting for free. So if, if anybody out what? there, so if anybody out in the audience uh, wants to know more about Gar Alperovitz, A-L-P-E-R-O-V-I-T-Z, uh, he's from the University of Maryland. If you put his name in Google, you'll find everything you need to know. He runs, he helps a bunch of co-ops up in Cleveland that revolve cool. around the Cleveland clinic. Yeah. 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 The other guy you want to listen to is Richard Wolf and uh -huh. he runs one of my favorite programs here on WFMP democracy at work. And it's all, he's all about co-ops. I've been following him for the last 15 years on WBAI up in New York. And I was so pleased to see that he was finally available on the air here in Louisville. Yeah, his show is called Economic Update. Economic Update. And his, his 
website is democracy at work that's I'm right sorry but it's it's all about co-ops and he's got and some it, strong uh points to make about those it's a real did, possibility did you say that that airs on forward radio or did i hear that yes wrong? it does it airs on forward radio oh, great uh, economic update I, i'm yeah. kind of an economics nut uh -huh. <laughs> i started then, following him about 15 years ago and it it changed how i looked did a lot of things. You know, he was well, a, he was a guest too on Letters and Politics just the other night. So uh, yeah, uh, yeah, it was a great long interview actually. So it was. Uh, it can was go super. back in the archives and hear that too. And that connects directly to the. Uh, it just occurs to me that connects to uh, coronavirus in a big way, of course, because as uh, as uh, a friend of Dr. Alperowitz, um, Noam Chomsky pointed out real clearly, it kind of obvious, but not supposed to be obvious. Um, the whole coronavirus, uh, not, not everything about it, but largely a market failure because of course, pharmaceutical companies make drugs so that in the hope that uh, Justin and I will, you know, buy medication so that we can grow our hair back um, <laughs> in, in favor of, uh, you know, listening to that. concerns about coronavirus that have been uh, issued by scientists for let's say the last four or five years they wait till you know there's a crisis and then they respond but um so huge market failure markets don't take care of, of people's health yep um uh, and uh That's so it seems like a direct point. direct connection um justin could you say a little bit more about the community grocery because that's new to me that's exciting to me yeah thank you i will let me quickly reintroduce everybody though uh you're tuned in to forward radio and truth to power my name is justin mogg host of sustainability now i've gathered a bunch of forward radio friends in the virtual studio for today's freewheeling conversation uh, as sort of as we go into the solstice and reviewing the year i've got hart hagen from let's talk in the climate report lonnie greasebaum from backtracks Stephen bartlett from our uh, community partner sustainable ag louisville ruth newman our program coordinator and you just heard from jeff levy who's working on a new show for us called outbreak the science policy and treatment of coronavirus uh, i'm glad you brought up uh or, or asked me to say a little more because uh, we're in, actually in the midst of a period that the louisville community grocery is calling the 12 days of cooperation uh it, it, taking the theme of the 12 days of christmas and so they've been having events uh, all december uh, of, of various kinds and there's a big one coming up this weekend on, on the sunday the 20th uh, if you go to louisville community com, you can learn about the co-op and you can join uh we're actually seeking more members. We have over 300 members right now. We need 800 members to to, to feel confident enough to put uh, you know a lease uh, money down on a lease uh, or or perhaps purchase of property. Uh, everybody's everybody's really wants to know where this store is going to be. It's going to be in a in one of our. Uh, neighborhoods suffering from food apartheid. So one of the downtown West Louisville uh, neighborhoods that have suffered from the closure of grocery stores and have, there's no place you can go to get fresh food. Uh, and so that's the whole purpose of this project. But we, we, we can't nail down the exact location until we get at least 800 members. You could become one today at uh, louisvillecommunitygrocery.com. Uh, yeah, there you go. There's my little plug for the night. Um, well, in our last little bit of the show, uh, I know Lonnie wanted to take a look back at history because he's been digging through the, the Courier-Journal's archives for some, uh, you know, little nuggets of truth that uh, here on Truth to Power we could share. So you looked, Lonnie, at, at the paper from 100 years ago today. Tell us about that. <laughs> yeah, I have a bad habit of going down in rabbit holes, <laughs> as does my co-host on Backtracks. That's right. 
we're the masters of rabbit holes and sometimes we wonder if we'll ever come out but uh we've got a subscription to the courage journal archives and so i went back a hundred years ago today and uh, was just going through the paper and it was your usual run-of-the-mill kind of things that were going on back in the 1920s you have to understand they were just coming out of world war one and so the doughboys had come back home unemployment had gone up um they had just gotten past their pandemic the 1918 oh, wow. flu pandemic things weren't back to normal after that either so uh things weren't going the greatest in in the economy then and but as i was flipping through the paper i ran across this full page ad from levy brothers which up until just uh, not too many years ago levy brothers was a st department store you know if you wanted a really snazzy right. suit you went to levy brothers and no relation right jeff levy <laughs> i don't believe so I, I, I tried to get them to adopt me for years they never said Did yes you, really? <laughs> yes but anyway this full page ad in the in the uh, Curry Journal from the Levy Brothers Company, it says here in bold letters to the bang public, if men and women are not employed, they cannot consume. If people don't consume, the former cannot sell the farmer. I'm sorry, cannot sell his crops, the merchant, his stock and the manufacturer, his product. Men and women cannot be employed unless you keep on buying. Wow. Keep on buying now that prices are down. Don't wait. And as I was saying before the show, the bad thing about deflation is, is that as prices drop, you might think, well, that's great. But actually, in aggregate, it's not great because if, if you need a new suit, you'd like to have a new suit. You don't really have to have it. And you think it's going to be cheaper next week, you'll wait. And so what happens in aggregate is, is buying stops and things get worse. It's just a downward spiral. But he go, the ad goes on to say, by not buying what you need, you prevent consumption of things on which you depend for your own living. And he goes on and says a few other things. But he closes with this, waiting only means unemployment. Unemployment means less consumption of the products of farms and factory and general business stagnation, which means bread lines. And he says, you can't sell your crops or your labor to the bread line man. Now, what I found the most interesting was right in the first sentence the Levy Brothers Company or whoever wrote this ad for them understood something that I don't think Congress this <laughs> week has understood. If men and women are not employed, they cannot consume. Okay. That's why they call it a stimulus bill, right? <laughs> Stimulate right. the economy. <laughs> no, so these guys a hundred years ago, they <laughs> seem to have a, a, a grasp of things that our Congress doesn't yeah. because they're up there right now, not wanting to even give somebody $600, much Ugh. less $1,200. They're not wanting to boost unemployment or extend the 
emergency unemployment. Or raise the minimum wage. But Right, but they're but they're wanting this weekend. They're talking about it as we yep, sit here yep. and talk. They are up there uh, trying to not do those things, but at the same time wanting to give these businesses more money. Now here's the deal: what are, what are the businesses going to do with that money? They're not going to put on an extra shift to produce more goods that they can't sell they can't hardly sell what they've got now they're scared to death that the christmas season's going to be a bust so what do they do with the money that they get from congress they buy back their own stock (laughs) and the stock market goes through the roof now my my feeling is i think congress does get it I think they don't want to do it because they just as soon give their rich buddies the benefit of all of these problems that we're having now. Hmm. Hart, what do you and think you, about this? the Levy Brothers Company? They got it <laughs> back 100 years ago. Well, we should put uh, money in people's hands. That's, you know, that's supply. That's demand side economics. That's what uh, you know. FDR, that was his theory. If you put money in people's hands, then they put it back into the economy. We got to the Reagan era and we got to supply side economics when all you have to do is give rich people more and they're going to somehow you know, work their magic and create jobs. There's no empirical support for that whatsoever. But to me, the word, I've been thinking a lot about decoupling, like we need to Mm. decouple consumption with a strong economy. Why do we have an economy where you have to strong, you have to consume more in order to make the economy strong? Why do we have an economy where labor is coupled with survival? Why do you, you know, labor need not be a, a strong part of of survival. I mean, the, the, the plutocrats at the top don't work for what they get. <laughs> Why should people have to work for what? So the following is, if, if I may, is a commentary, my partial commentary on the eco-socialist Green New Deal, which is uh, just a common sense Green New Deal. To me, eco-socialism is common sense. But it says the eco-socialist Green New Deal calls for us to decommodify survival in other words, survival is not for sale. Decommodify survival by guaranteeing living wages, health care, child care, housing, food, water, energy, public transit, a healthy environment, and other necessities for all. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. urged us to provide these necessities because uh, people do their best work, not when they toil as slaves, but when they are freed from the daily struggle for survival. Our ecological crisis requires the best from everyone. People can't be at their best when they are constantly struggling to survive. But we have, you know, that what I just read is almost an unknown concept in American culture where, you know, people have to work and struggle and sweat and slave. (laughs) And and it's based on propaganda that comes to us from the plutocrats at the top who don't care about us, but they do want us to be indoctrinated so that we slave away and think that we're not entitled to anything. Lonnie, what do you think? It's the earth that gives us the abundance, the, Mm. you know, abundance our provisions come from the earth Hmm. and it's it's wrong for a few people to hoard the resources that we need to live 
right in the right conditions in the right conditions right like in the nihilistic period of human development they said the average work week was like 15 hours a week where you actually had to right work to get what you needed to live hunting agriculture and and the rest of the time was was your own right well it reminds me so much i think about this all the time back when i was in high school and i hate to tell you how long ago that was <laughs> you don't have to your secret's safe with us <laughs> but i remember having i remember having extended classroom discussions with our teachers and the subject was what were we going to do with all our free time <laughs> the work week went down to like 20 hours a week because of robots or what i don't know i guess because of technology robot. and everything else <laughs> but i'm not you know whatever happened i mean so but yeah you're right heart i mean to be honest if you got rid of all the stupid gadgets and just worthless stuff that this country produces, uh, we could all probably get by working eight or 10 hours a week. We do, we could all of us do plenty enough to keep everything going, you know, and if you don't believe we, we make things that nobody needs, <laughs> just go into any thrift store. Yeah. Go in, go look outside on junk pickup day. <laughs> Most of that stuff isn't that old. I mean, it's like, fairly new stuff i mean people just throw it out yeah I mean, it's crazy that you have to get a new cell phone every year oh my every gosh two the years. planned I obsolescence mean, they, yeah. they could they could make a cell phone that you could upgrade for the next 15 years sure. anyway sure and they could make one that you could drop and the screen didn't break <laughs> they, they don't want to make one that won't break when you drop That's it right. or you drop it in the toilet or in a bucket of water by <laughs> i do that just for you fun. know <laughs> i mean my great-grandfather my my uh my uh niece has it in her room it's her bed my great-grandfather in 1869 made his own wedding bed his bed for his one after he oh, got wow. married it weighs like an unbelievable amount. <laughs> he was a craftsman. He built this thing to last, and it has lasted, and it is beautiful. It is ornate. Wow. Yeah. And it's been a hundred and what? A hundred and fifty years old. Wow. Go ahead, Hart. But these oh. IKEA bids probably won't last two, no, they won't. <laughs> two months. So That's you talk about gadgets. My question is, who controls our common technological heritage? It's like, um, you know, we we have gadgets, uh, we and we have technology because ourselves, our parents, our grandparents paid taxes to the government, which then paid the Pentagon to develop all this technology, and the the benefits of the economic fruits of that get hoarded by a few. Mm. This technology should be public domain. It mm. should be uh, op free and open source. It should be shared. It should be not. It should not be patented or owned by anybody. And the same goes with drugs. We we pay the government to develop these drugs. The government gives the patents to a few companies that can then gouge the same consumer that paid taxes to have the drugs developed. 
Yeah. Thank you, Hart. It's a plutocracy. It's not a democracy. It's yeah. a plutocracy. Thank, thank you. What the tropper tropper calling the, the shots. drug company? The drug the drug companies actually hang around in the hallways of the universities, looking at you know the biomedical department, just trying to know what's going on. And the minute something's discovered, they rush in and get a patent on it. Yeah. Well, this year's Nobel Prize for Medicine and Physiology was awarded for work on hepatitis C. And um, we know that Gilead Pharmaceuticals um, purchased a, uh, it cost them about a dollar to, um, to uh, produce their, uh, their vaccine. Wow. Um, and they charge about a thousand dollars per vaccine wow. um, at least according to what I had heard from uh, from Paul Farmer uh, being interviewed with uh, partners for health he's usually a pretty good source so yeah so what I'm picking up on what Hart said pu publicly funded research largely and then a private company bought up the patent and now they make the money so we paid we paid for it but we don't own any part of the patent the Gilead owns yeah. the patent we're, yeah. we're, we're almost out of time here. Uh, I, I just wanted to really quickly uh, circle back to what Hart was saying about decoupling. And this is the time for decoupling. Why not decouple healthcare from employment and Medicare for all? Hart, there's some good news about some folks pressuring Nancy Pelosi on this. Yeah, uh, Jimmy Dore is, a, is, is somebody I like a lot. And a lot of people don't like him because he's raucous and he calls names and he cusses. But that's what I like about him. Uh, but he, <laughs> he's, he says, okay, FDs, and I, I, I lost respect for AOC. I'm sorry, she's not following through with her campaign promises. Mm. But she said, okay, we have a few. It's a like, uh, is Nancy Pelosi going to be the next speaker? Uh, the leftists in Congress, there are like 15 progressives in Congress that could say, okay, Nancy Pelosi, if you want my vote, it's simple. All you have to care for all to the floor. Yeah. And uh, he's been pushing the idea and it's gaining traction. It's also getting pushed back from uh, it's getting pushed back from the establishment. And AOC is saying, look how many co-sponsors we have. Well, John Yarmouth is a co-sponsor of Medicare for all. That doesn't mean he's going to bat for it. Mm -hmm. Co-sponsor list is where uh, you can use it for toilet paper because that's about what it's worth. Hmm. Co-sponsoring a bill does not mean you're going to vote for wow. it. We want to see people go on record voting against health care in the middle of a pandemic. Yeah. Bring it to the floor for a vote. And if I'm a progressive, if I'm AOC, if I'm Pramila Jayapal, if I'm Ro Khanna, I'm saying, Nancy Pelosi, you want my vote? You got to earn it. And on that note, we've got to wrap it up. We're all out of time. This has been a great conversation, though, friends. Thank you so much for joining me. Stephen Bartlett from Sustainable Ag Louisville, Ruth Newman, our program coordinator, Lonnie Griesbaum from Backtracks, Hart Hagen from Let's Talk and the Climate Report, and Jeff Levy. We look forward to hearing your new program on the outbreak, the science policy and treatment of coronavirus. I'm Justin Mogg from Sustainability Now. We'll be back in yours again in one week's time. And thank you, everybody, for joining me today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Justin. All what right. a pleasure. We'll see you all Talk later. Down. Bye now. Thanks.